This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in, whether you're listening to us live or via a slightly time-delayed podcast. We do appreciate your time. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? That was very nice sounding. You're, why you're, is, oh, no, you why just the time very, is surprised? Well, you just, no, you seem to be in a very good mood. It must be uh, the weather or the climate. I'm always in a good mood on a Sunday <laughs> morning when there's science involved. <laughs> Indeed. And... Dr. Laura. Good morning, Dr. Ray and everyone. It is a sunny day. I'm happy also. Yeah, and you're not on a plane, which is good. Are um, you still grounded? No, I'm leaving in a few days. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who haven't listened to the show uh, before, uh, Dr. Laura spends the majority of her time at about 37,000 feet. Um, yeah, I'm only going away for a month or so, just oh my God. the usual amount of time. A whole month. How do I get any science done? I don't know. I don't know. Do you work? <laughs> Surely. The whole trip is work. Do you have a job? Don't you find that working on the plane is the most, there's the best time to work? Yes. You're very focused. Absolutely. There's no internet, sort of, for the time being before yep. it becomes everywhere. Mm. It's, it's a good time to work. I Dr. get it. Dr. Linden is absolutely right. Yeah. Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> Do you share those sentiments of working on the plane? Uh, actually, yeah. And well, it, and it's also very kind for the, the the passengers next to me because if I fall asleep, I snoring is louder than the engine, so it's easier right. if I stay awake and work. Yes, yeah, so I always found the low oxygen. I, my brain doesn't function very well in that environment, so yeah, it doesn't work for me. Anyway, let's get into some science because uh, that's not very science. <laughs> Dr. Ray, let's start with you with some news. What do you uh, got, Dr. Shane? I have. Um, news that that surprised me a little i'm talking about ice dunes so there's sand dunes and then there's ice dunes so you might imagine an ice dune is made out of ice now depending on what type of ice it is depends on what planet you're on and so we're talking about ice dunes on pluto so windblown sand or ice dunes are common there they've been observed on earth we know we have sand dunes on mars they have sand dunes on venus on titan and actually, on one particular comet, actually has ice dunes, um, which I was surprised. It, the name of the comet is 67P. Oh, no, I can't even. It's two really long names. Hmm. Uh, Chernomanov. Oh, not, yeah, that guy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, anyway, so uh, after, uh, of course, the New Horizons flyby of Pluto, they were, they're still analyzing data from that mission. And uh, they were looking at a particular plateau, which is called the Sputnik Plantea, I assume named after Sputnik, um, <clears throat> where they actually have observed dunes. And mm. they reckon it's ice crystals of methane as little grains, and they actually see sand dunes out, out of ice on Pluto. Now, why this is surprising is Pluto doesn't really have much of an atmosphere. It's I was going to say, it means wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To have dunes, you need wind. Pluto's <laughs> atmosphere has a pressure of about one pascal. That's a 100,000 times less than than Earth's. So there's very little wind there. So they went, well, we see dunes. They actually see the, the structures that are obviously from windblown sand or, or grains of ice. But they're like, well, where's the wind coming from? So the, 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 the Sputnik Plateau is actually frozen nitrogen. And they think the wind comes from sublimation. So they think wow. the solid nitrogen is going straight to gas. And that venting 
of nitrogen is actually what gives the wind. Hmm. So how have they been looking into this, Dr. Ray? Did they do any kind of experiments, or is it just based on the way that the dunes are structured? They think that's how the wind is occurring? Uh, most of this is, is image analysis and composition, co- mm-hmm. compositional analysis. So the data from New, New Horizons is really what allowed them to come to this. But So it was the photos, compositional photos, to confirm that it's nitrogen and that 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 it's methane and, and based on temperature as well. Hmm. Um, but I, I think you raise a good point. I think what happens here, um, this is mostly on image analysis and pattern recognition, but that's got to be based on the fact that there's been so much work in climate modeling of places other than Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, the, mm-hmm. our understanding of wind, you know, you, the expectation that you have wind, the idea that you can have sublimation drive uh, drive some type of wind, I think is based off modeling of previous other planets and, and a lot of climate modeling. But then we're getting into what you know about, Dr. Linden, instead of me. <laughs> My it's, knowledge it's, of modeling ice dunes is... Um, Yeah, quite limited, I have to admit. Well, no, but the idea of climate models to predict wind. I mean, extraterrestrial ones have have looked at low atmospheres before Mm. because Mars' atmosphere is one-fifth Earth's. I mean, mean, partly to me, I think, is is this just a time issue as well? I mean, if you have a very, very low pressure and relatively weak wind, maybe you just get dunes over thousands of years as opposed to a day. Yeah, that's what I was Um, thinking too, if you could see any rates of change in mm-hmm. these dunes and how 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 long it's taken them to evolve and yeah. also how dense they are, like how mm. tightly packed they yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. You might be able to... I mean, it, it'd be interesting, you know, if... I mean, this is not going to happen in any time soon, but if you put something else past blue, though, in the yeah. next 20 years, you might look at the same dunes and go, oh, they haven't changed a bit because yeah. <laughs> they took a, you know, took a thousand years to generate. So yeah. Yeah, they um, can't just get New Horizons to do a quick U-turn <coughs> after it gets farther out. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think so. Um, but it's, fa- <laughs> I don't it's, think it works it's going too way. fast. Well, it's yeah. going too fast, but it's, um, it's fascinating when we see these features that we, you know, in the past have always thought of as just earth. Mm-hmm. Everywhere else. I mean, every other feature, you know, that, that we could think of, you see elsewhere pretty much in the solar system. And I was thrown there with a comet too, because yeah. they don't yeah. have atmospheres, but they're always, they have a lot of melting going on from yep. the sun and sublimation. Yeah. So. Cool stuff. Mm. Dr. Laura, what do you go first? Well, I thought I would mention something that has gone absolutely viral this week. It actually... For an immunologist, does that mean the same thing as it does for everyone else? This is... is, It's like a bowler? Not even going close to immunology. Should should we be sitting as close to you as we are and maybe everyone scoots over (laughs) a bit? I don't work with so many pathogens, it's fine. So (laughs) So many. many. It's just one that we worry about. I've seen your building and there's really big doors and they're kind of pressure seal. Yep, that's right. Okay, but something that is trending so much this week is about cockroach milk. Oh, yeah. Has anybody heard about this? Can't get enough of it. Can't get enough of it. I'm a little nauseous. So there's so many stories. It takes ages to get the glass out, though. (laughs) (laughs) Squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. Well, we will get to that, actually. So I thought I would just clarify a few points on cockroach milk from what I've read about it. So in 2016, a study came out that um, cockroach milk is really, really nutritious. Mm. Actually, four times more nutritious than cow's milk. Wow. Wow. Mm. And actually, it's only from the Pacific, Pacific beetle. So most cockroaches, of course, lay eggs, but this beetle, type of beetle, 
will lay their young and will, you know, give milk to their young. And so it has this milk crystal, and this milk crystal that has to be extracted from a pregnant beetle is really, really nutritious. Now, this week has gone viral because um, there's kind of, it's sounding our insects, the new superfood. A company's been made where you can make ice cream out of certain fly larvae. And so people are coming back to this cockroach story now and saying, is this possible? Now, I thought I'd give you a few points on why it's not possible. Okay, why? Hey, it's gross. <laughs> well, hey, it's gross. Well, some people get into that. So, you know, f- fair enough, used to their own. But uh, there's going to have to be a lot of manpower to extract a lot of crystals from a lot of dead cockroaches. And how many cockroaches would it take to make a glass? Mm. Is that milk? the same as people power? <laughs> so 5,000 dead cockroaches you would have to kill to get one glass of milk. And we're not just talking about the cockroaches that currently live in my shed. We're talking about a specif- uh, like specific, specific type. type. Yes, yeah, so you can't milk any cockroach. It's got to be milk the, any old cockroach. Specific, but the Pacific beetle. Specific beetle. <laughs> the Pacific the, the beetle. S- specifically, the Pacific beetle. <laughs> right. Say that fast. Uh, <laughs> how large is that beetle? Is this like a, a big it is palmetto a large beetle? Okay. It is. It, I, uh, yeah. I had a look into this beetle. It's a big beetle. Um, cockroach. Big cockroach. It's a large thing. But anyway, you would have to kill five thousand of them. So why is this story going viral this week? I guess people just love the idea of cockroach milk. It's the new. Uh, Mm. So I, I feel sorry for the milk industry. They're already having an argument. You know, yeah. they prefer milk as just things from mammals, and they have all these challenges around what milk is defined as from soy or rice or nut milk. But, you know, they really hadn't yet considered the, the insect possibilities for milk, and that's mm. just going to be a whole other PR thing to have to deal with. I mean, can you just eat the whole cockroach? You could. Oh. And like, of course, I mean, there's, there's other stuff in there. Like, is it worth... Because people are talking about insects as protein sources. Well, this this milk crystal, so if you happen to get a pregnant cockroach that you would have to be lucky enough to get a pregnant one if you were to eat said dead cockroach mm. is meant to be they, they touted it as the most nutritious substance on earth yeah because you chuck stuff in the blender i'll eat pretty much anything yep so you could put it in your nutribullet anything so, but you, you would have to get the right type of cockroach and it would have to be pregnant i'm really interested about how these kinds of results get found you know in the first place what was what was somebody what was doing ex- i mean maybe there's a good reasons maybe the the young of these pacific beetles are really strong or they mm. have superpowers and they thought, what is that from? It's really interesting to think about how these kind of discoveries get made. I mean, I think everybody was interested in these cockroaches because they're the only type that will actually birth live young. Right. Oh, okay. So I think right. that's why they've been so Hence studied. the milk. Mm-hmm. Hence the milk. Mm. Well, <laughs> let's uh, watch that space. But, watch that um, space. I suspect it won't be on the supermarket shelf anytime soon, I folks. do not think so. Um, Everyone continue to enjoy their turmeric lattes this morning, <laughs> I hope. Yeah. But it's nice to see that unpasteurised milk has a competitor. Oh, <laughs> is, that, is that fair? <laughs> hmm, <laughs> Yum. Dr. Linden, now what's going on with the, uh, are we talking weather or climate? We're talking climate today, oh, Dr. Shane. So I know it's, it's a beautiful morning. I am having a lovely day despite, again, some pretty sad stats coming out of the Bureau of Meteorology this week. Of course, we have finished autumn and mm. officially began winter on Friday. No and shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, it might have felt like it this morning when you woke yeah, up and it was, it was about chilly. four degrees. Yeah. Uh, but Australia has just had its fourth warmest autumn on record. Uh, it was the fourth warmest autumn on record. It was at 1.18 degrees warmer than average. Mm. The warmest autumn that we had on record was 2005. So Victoria was also much warmer than average, our fourth warmest as well, and our maximum temperatures were the second warmest since um, national records began in 1910. So mm. it's been quite warm across much of the country, a little bit cooler than average up in Queensland, but warmer than average across a lot of the country, and the warmest on record for some parts of Victoria and a lot of inland New South Wales. Now, this is... Um, um, 
you can make of it what you will, but another thing that's kind of making it a little bit worse this year is it's also been very dry. Okay. Southern Australia's actually had its second driest autumn on mm. record, if you mm. average across a whole, the whole of the south, mm. which is a little bit uh, worrying for a lot of the farmers up there. We have had, we did have a couple of events uh, delivering a bit of rainfall in the last six weeks or so, but it's generally been been pretty dry, the second uh, driest on record. Mm. Can I ask a specific... Sorry, Ray? I, I was going to ask, what, how does that <laughs> fit in with the bombs predictions for the winter for rainfall. Yeah, so the winter uh, seasonal outlook also came out on Thursday and it is it's quite interesting the models are suggesting warmer than average so a mildish winter and drier than average particularly for June which is is mm. kind of scary and uh I mean it doesn't it doesn't mean that there won't be cold days or cold nights but on average the models are predicting mm. warmer than which is interesting because we don't have any large scale climate drivers happening at the moment. We don't have any El Ninos or La Ninas. The Indian Ocean sort of looking pretty normal, behaving. behaving. Mm. The waters around the Tasman Sea are a little bit warmer than normal, which might be having something to do with it. But uh, otherwise, particularly the drying signal is pretty well aligned with what you would expect from a, a warmer world. Mm. So so this is almost like it, it's, it's the new normal. Well, I mean, that's a hard, for it's a hard figure, thing to right? say, but, but this, yeah. this particular pattern that we see with the rain bearing systems that come particularly in the cooler part of the year for us, moving a little bit further south, just not delivering as much rainfall and not coming as often. That's definitely something that's been well predicted, uh, by what happens when you put a little bit of extra energy into the atmosphere. Can I ask a very specific question about this? Um, when, when you mentioned, you know, it's been a warmer, March, April, etc. Are we talking about an expansion of the length of summer or a movement of the timing of summer? Yeah, because that, these are very different things. Mm, that's a really interesting question, and I think there's lots of ways that you could look at it, depending on how you define mm. what what you define it as. The first day that's above a certain right. yeah. degree, or the number of nights that are below a certain degree. These kinds of things. You can also look at it in terms of where different parts of the atmospheric circulation sit and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So. Uh, what we, the hottest month actually, or the month that we saw some real records being broken was April this okay. year. So it's yep. just kind of in the middle mm, of the autumn yeah. period. And in April we had this summer-like heat really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some really hot days. The 10, what did I read this morning in the climate statement that the Bureau released? The 10 highest temperatures recorded in April. So anywhere around Victoria, the 10 warmest temperatures that have been recorded all happened in April this year. Oh, right, yeah. Which is, I don't know, it just kind of seems it's, pretty it's scary. Because mm. I, I suppose they're, why I asked that question is because I think we have this we have this social overlay mm. to our understanding of temperatures and so forth. And mm. it's almost like, oh, it's the first day of winter, so it should therefore be cold yeah. on that day. And, and we, we think about it that way, and it's like, oh, you know, autumn. Autumn's not supposed to be cold, mm. but it was cold. You know, like that, that I think is problematic in our thinking because yeah. we, we fail to see that larger pattern of, oh, you know what? Summer now is not three months. It's five. Yeah. And it would be, I think it's good to get that information mm. out that, you know, th- this is what, this is part of what's shifting is that the nice clean four quarters of the year we used to, we got used to is not really the way things are happening. Yeah. Anymore. And it's different to see. I think uh, there are some studies saying that um, spring is yeah, kind of starting a little bit mm. earlier. Mm. Summer, so so winter is finishing earlier, and um, moving moving them in that way, whether one season's finishing, yeah, yeah. one season's yeah. starting. Yeah, that that is really interesting. But also to know that like one hot day or one cold day is not 
oh, climate change is here or climate change yeah. is not yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're going to have weather on top of that. On top of that, yep. And that makes it harder to to get sometimes. And it's particularly on a beautiful day like today, you kind of want to enjoy it. And these days do happen. Yeah. It's okay, but it's when you average it all together, it just sorts of looks a bit scary. Yeah, it's problematic. Thank you, Dr. Linden. Uh, We're going to take a break, folks. In a moment, we're going to have our first of three guests today. This is all part of the Australian Society for Medical Research's Medical Research Week, which is coming up, and we do a little bit of a show for that each year, and we have a whole range of guests coming in to talk about the latest and greatest medical research, so we'll be back in a few minutes. Triple. Uh, welcome back, back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Aya Musa. She is from the Monash Centre for Health Research and Implementation at Monash University. Aya, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, um, you're here as part of the um, Medical Research Weeks of the Celebration. Uh, are you doing anything special for Medical Research Week yourself? Uh, not really, no. Just continuing my usual medical research, I guess. Oh, that's, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's probably a party on somewhere. I'm sure that you could just, you know... Yeah. Crash. Probably. Um, <laughs> now, you, you work in um, the area of vitamin D and some of the health effects and so forth that it has. So can you first give us a bit of an idea of what vitamin D is? I mean, we've all heard of these things, but, I mean, chemically and so forth, what is, what's a vitamin and what's, what's vitamin D specifically? So, interestingly, vitamin D is actually not a vitamin. It's okay. a secosteroid hormone. So it actually functions as a hormone. So it's got multiple biological effects. Um, we're finding more and more every day that it's involved in different parts of the human body. There's receptors for vitamin D pretty much on every organ. So that's why it's been quite a hot topic recently in terms of medical research. We're um, trying to figure out exactly why there's receptors in all these organs and and what it does specifically for different diseases. Obvious question, why do we call it a vitamin? It was actually misnamed historically, yes. So it's like the brontosaurus? I'm not sure about that. (laughs) But apparently, yeah, there was some confusion over the brontosaurus being an actual separate dinosaur from the apatosaurus, but that's a different topic. Um, So in terms of, I mean, chemically, how complex is this particular thing? I mean, is this like a simple molecule or is it like super complicated? What is it? It is fairly complex. Um, We don't completely understand it yet, um, but it has different versions. So when you get vitamin D from UV exposure, then it's hydroxylated in the liver and then in the kidneys to more complex forms and Mm -hmm. active biological forms and that's what we're trying to figure out exactly what those active forms do so we know that it regulates calcium and that it's important for bone health um, but there must be a reason why there's these receptors in in all different organs and that's what we're trying to figure out outside of the calcium balance i guess Mm. um trying to figure out what it does so before before we get onto those organs i want to get a picture of how we get vitamin d i mean is it something we can consume as or is it something we just produce due to sunlight exposure so there's three different ways you can get vitamin d one, the, the main way is through UV exposure mm-hmm. um, at certain times of the day. The other way is that um, you get about 5 to 10% of vitamin D through the diet. So things like oily fish mm-hmm. um, would have vitamin D as well as fortified milk and dairy products. Um, and I think that's actually the only ways you can mm-hmm. get it, yeah. And what do we see in terms of... Um in terms of like the variation in vitamin D levels for people in different parts of the world. I mean, you know, if you live in right up in the northern hemisphere, for example, closer to the North Pole, where the amount of the amount of light is, you know, substantially lower, mm-hmm. is it common to see vitamin D deficiencies in those sorts of countries, or is it, or is that not what we see? 
Yes, in fact, it is common in most countries. Actually, the third way I forgot to mention was through supplements. Right. So, okay. Yep. Um, with the whole idea about um, sun exposure and skin cancer yeah. and things, the the best way probably to to get vitamin D without increasing your risk of skin cancer is through supplements. Mm-hmm. And so, um, surprisingly, in Australia, about thirty percent of the population is vitamin D deficient, um, even though it's a sunny, well, it's hot sun. climate. Yeah. Yes, but that's also because of the use of sunscreen yep. and um, protective clothing and things like that for skin cancer that people are still deficient because vitamin D supplements aren't commonly used, I guess. Mm. That was the same question. Oh, the same question. Um, in, in terms of, like, when, when we... Uh, thinking about the body, you know, and how much skin we have, I mean, we evolved to wander around in, let's call it a loincloth or less, and our bodies evolved to, you know, generate vitamin D as a result of that exposure, but we don't do that anymore. I mean, how, mm. how much exposure do you need to get to actually generate enough vitamin D? I mean, forgetting the skin cancer thing for a second, I mean, you said certain times of day. Mm-hmm. So what would be required for me to meet my vitamin D needs in terms of uh, skin exposure and you so actually, forth. yeah, so you actually don't need more than about 20 minutes mm-hmm. in the sun between the hours of 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. Is that completely o'clock? nude? Like completely nude? No, no. no. <laughs> Hopefully not. to try to be completely nude. <laughs> well, I'm just saying you can do this stuff in the comfort of your own backyard, you know what I mean? I, I mean, you can if, you, if that's what you want Stand to do. So could you do like minutes. two minutes completely stark as in the backyard, two minutes? I feel so sorry for your neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. Um, you can if, if you wish, but mainly just your arms and legs. Right, um, is enough. And yeah, just the shorts and a singlet or something like yeah. that would be for 20 minutes between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock when the sun is high right. um, would be sufficient. And, in fact, any more than that, you probably don't get any more, any more vitamin D in your system Right. Okay. by spending more time in the now, sun. Now, let's talk about the, the other organs and other parts of the body that you've been looking into. What specifically do you think vitamin D can affect in that regard? I mean, what, what sort of areas are we exploring? So, in my PhD research, I actually looked at um, its effects on uh, risk factors for type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So things like glucose control, inflammation, um, hypertension, cardiometabolic risk factors, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and what we found was that it didn't actually improve the clinical risk factors such as glucose control. So it didn't reduce glucose or insulin sensitivity in, in people who were at risk, so overweight right. and obese individuals. Um, but it did actually have uh, anti-inflammatory effects in people with existing diabetes. So... Mm-hmm. The summary or the gist of it, I guess, is that it had anti-inflammatory effects in uh, people that had high inflammation already. So people with type 2 diabetes who have chronic low-grade inflammation, uh, it did improve inflammation in those people. Hmm. And we also found that with the glucose control, it might actually have specific benefits in certain populations. So it's not a one-size-fits-all approach by mm. any means so certain um, doses of vitamin d in certain groups might actually be more beneficial than in other groups mm. and that's probably a genetic thing right yeah. mm. did you expect to find these results i did you go in looking for that looking for the role of vitamin d in diabetes or were you expecting to see something else no so yes we we actually designed a clinical trial specifically addressing that um, because most of the previous evidence they didn't have they didn't give enough doses of vitamin d to actually change the circulating levels in the system um, they didn't go for long enough to observe actual beneficial effects or changes in those um, metabolic risk factors that they were looking at so we designed a clinical trial and we actually went and recruited people people, gave them the supplements and then watched what happened over time. Um, mm. And yeah, 
but we didn't find anything for that particular outcome. And Aya, when we're talking about supplements, so vitamin, vitamin D, good for a broad range of diseases, should everybody be taking supplements? And do you just mean the sort of pills that we can get down the chemist? Or So that's a really good question. Yes, the, the ones that you get from the, from the chemist with the vitamin D supplements, that's what you would take. Um, regardless of what it does for other um, in, in other organs or for other diseases like diabetes, it's still very important for bone health. So because it regulates your calcium and to prevent rickets in children and osteomalacia in adults, so that's the softening or weakening of bones, it's still really important to make sure that you have adequate vitamin D levels, so above 50 nanomoles per litre. Um, yeah, so I, w- I would say that ensuring that you don't have vitamin D deficiency, especially if you're spending a lot of time indoors in, in the studio, perhaps, <laughs> and you're it's not really getting dark. much sun exposure. Yeah. Well, yeah. If 30% of all of us are, are deficient, should we all be getting down to Chemist Warehouse then? We, we neither endorse nor uh, <laughs> no, own part not. of yes. that particular <laughs> brand. Yeah. Um, I would suggest <laughs> that you have your vitamin D levels checked, um, and it depends on the time of year and how. So even though 30% are deficient, it would vary along the year and depending on how much time you spend outside. And presumably, yeah. like iron levels, vitamin D levels would be highly variable between individuals depending on their, their metabolism, right? Exactly I mean, right. Yes. So, you know, you have some people who have mild exposure to the sun and they're never really going to have a vitamin D deficiency in their entire life, whereas others are, you know, down St. Kilda Beach every other day, but for whatever reason are deficient. That's right. And also your skin colour um, mm-hmm. can determine how much a vitamin D you get from sun exposure. So somebody with dark skin would get less vitamin D spending the same time Is that right? yeah, yeah. in the sun as opposed to a Caucasian with yeah. lighter skin. So it just depends on how your skin actually metabolises the vitamin D that yeah. you get from the sun. Well, I've got really light skin, so I just I just open the door. The sun just yeah, hits me for fine. 10 seconds. <laughs> and I shut the door and I'm good to go. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you going to look at next? Is there another sort of illness or disease that you're thinking you're going to challenge with vitamin D powers to? next so at the moment we are thinking of actually looking at this idea that different people respond differently and we're wanting to establish why that is or what it is that actually predicts those differences so we're wanting to collect data from all the um, trials that have been done looking at vitamin d and glucose related outcomes um, putting them all together from all the experts internationally and seeing what the effects are um, and then also collecting some of the samples to see if there are genetic th- genetic determinants that actually um, dictate how you respond to the vitamin D. Mm. So hopefully that will it might show that certain groups would benefit more in terms of prevention of diabetes than others but that's yeah, watch the space I guess. Yep. And you're going to lead a campaign to rename it Important Molecule D. Yeah, yeah. 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 hormone D or something hormone like D. that. Yeah. Yes. Um, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. Good luck uh, with this work. It's really interesting. It'd be good to see when there's a time when it's, it, there's enough information out there to give people advice on what they should do because I, I can see it's still a little way off that, but yes. it's interesting, the results so far. So well done. Uh, good luck with your continuing research. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. Dr. Aya Musa is from the Monash Centre for Health Research and Implementation at Monash University. Three, triple Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Tan Nguyen. He's from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Tan, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much, Shane. It's great to be here. Now, you're gonna, we're going to have to unpack some of your stuff because it's uh, Dr. Linden is a climatologist that's getting scared, and I'm, <laughs> I'm getting scared. Dr. Lauren's okay. Ray's just, he's about to leave. Um, <laughs> Halfway. <laughs> but now, you, you, 
first of all, let's let's talk about what you work on. You work on a particular protein which is called I'm assuming you pronounce it SID T two or maybe S I D T two. SID T two is the um the first one is yep. how now, I say it, so yeah. Let's good. let's start with um should we go protein, Dr. Lynn? Do you want to know what the protein yes, is? Please. Yeah, okay. So let's just talk about what proteins are, yeah. first of all. Absolutely. So our proteins are kind of the subunits of our cell, so they're the functional subunits of our cell. And um each cell uh, makes their own specific suite of proteins and, and these proteins are designed for that cell's job in mind, so specific cells will produce certain proteins that help them do their job. And mm. CD2 is one of these, um, I guess, proteins that are uh, produced in immune cells, so the uh, cells of our immune system, and it mm. um, would have a role in it, uh, the antiviral response. And, and why did you why did you pick this particular protein? I mean, is this um, one that was kind of standing out there waving, going, "Hey, I'm pretty interesting," or no, one that hadn't been looked at? Maybe the opposite of that. Yeah, so it was a protein that was. Um, relatively unknown when I first started my PhD. Um, no one really knew what it did. The only thing we really knew was that... Um, so it was originally discovered um, or described in worms and um, was found to be, you know, highly conserved throughout animal evolution. So you can find it in fish, um, algae, frogs, um, and to humans as well. So um, it was, you know, it must be playing some sort of important role, we thought. Um, but what that role was, no one had um, any idea. We only The only hint we had was it was a um, protein that was involved in transferring or transporting these um, molecules called RNA, which is a genetic material similar to DNA. And it was involved in transporting these from cell to cell. But beyond that, no one really knew what it was. And I think that's why I kind of jumped on. I'm like, what is this protein doing? Yeah. I really wanted to find out what's going yeah, on. I, I love the fact that it's in worms and, you know, all the way up. Yeah. Is, is it one of these, you see these pictures every now and then of a protein and they're these things that just look like beach balls of molecules, you know, yeah. these super complicated things. Is this, is this one of those? Yeah. I, I think I like, um, there's not much known about the specific structure of this protein. And um, what we do know is, um, it kind of, it has kind of has a nice symmetrical structure. It's kind of like a what I describe as a puck-like structure. Mm-hmm. So, and it's um, in the center of the um, puck is a tiny little hole, um, which we've um, hypothesized is just big enough for a molecule of RNA to kind of slip through. Um, so it acts like a channel protein, I guess. Um, mm. But beyond that, um, we don't have a specific structure for it. And, and how do you how do you study a protein like this? I mean, what are the you know microscope type arrangements you use mm-hmm. to look into I mean I understand there's the the functional elements you know put in a blender and see what get you know that kind of stuff yeah. but but do you examine it structurally as well um, I haven't done that personally I've what I've mainly used is as you mentioned um, using uh, microscopy so we've um, you know Overexpress this protein in cells, or we make we make it in cells, and we tag it with a um, specific color. I guess mm-hmm. so we were able to track the protein throughout the cell using a, um, a microscope, um, and then because we know what kind of um, or we have a, a hunch about what it's actually doing, we can treat cells with RNA, and then see whether or not the RNA actually ever meets this protein hmm. um, just by colors. I guess right, yeah, yeah. just by colors. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. That fits into my question because. This is the engineering model of a, a cell, so bear with me. Does your protein sit in the cell, or is it a membrane protein, or is it something that you find out in the bloodstream or in a tissue? Where does it, yeah. given you have that tracking, where does it live? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a good question. So we we discovered that it was a um, it's within the cell, but it's also a transmembrane protein. So it's actually um, stuck on these um, vesicles in, within the cell called endosomes. And lysosomes. So these cells are, they, they're involved in the uptake of things from the environment from the cell. So if the cell can find something in the environment that it wants to take inside, it'll take it up into these vesicular structures and that's where CT2 hmm. um, lies. Now it, it has a role, um, according to 
what you sent through in the immune system. Does mm-hmm. that mean you find it throughout the body or is it just in part of the body? How does yeah, that work? absolutely. So um, it is found throughout the body and it's, to, it's expressed at um, different levels, I guess. Um, interestingly, there is another um, kind of ancestor of this protein or relative of this protein called CT1, um, mm-hmm. aptly named, I guess. And... Um, we found that that's mainly it's more restricted um, where in in the body, so it's only found in certain cells of the body. Whereas CT2 is kind of everywhere. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And you're living the immunologist's dream. You worked on a protein. You found out that it was super important. And can you just explain to us why it's so important? Yeah. And absolutely, I could have gone um, the exact opposite way. Couldn't could, it? Be, could be nothing. Could, be, could have done nothing. But it was. Um, we found that it was. Um, as I mentioned, it's in these vesicles called endosomes, um, and it was a transporter of RNA um, ancestrally. So um, we thought it was kind of a hypothesis that, you know, the only time a human uh, would really ever see this kind of RNA that um, uh, would be detected by the immune system is during a viral infection where viruses make um, their own... They have their own genome, obviously, and they would make viral RNA um that was detected by the immune system. So we were able to show that this protein um, has a role in transporting um, this viral RNA that's specific to the virus from infected cells um, over to uh, neighbouring uninfected cells that were able to fight off the virus properly. So, so what happens if you don't have these proteins? Yep. So if in the lack of um, when you lack this protein, then your antiviral response is severely um, dampened. So you're not able to clear the infection as well, and your immune um, response to different viruses is impaired. So, so what does that mean in terms of a scenario where I know you've been working a bit on cancer, but you know there's this there's this big idea that our immune system, which clears cancer, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that our immune system clears cancers from the body throughout our lives, and then we get to a point where, for whatever reason, our immune system fails to clear a larger set of cancers, or you know, Absolutely. cancer cells, and. You know, there's a lot of study at the moment going into how we get the immune system back on track. This this sounds like a, a key component of that. I mean, can you just overload me with some of this protein so that I, you know, get those cancer cells over to the other cells that can do the job? Is yeah, that- actually, um, it's a good point that the immune system has been used to um, recently being able... We're trying to turn on the immune system back mm. um, to fight off cancers. Um, and like you mentioned, I am working on um, the role of CT2 in cancer now. Um, but it's actually kind of the opposite kind of thing to what you're suggesting. We found that um, if you lose um, this protein, you actually do better. So we actually oh, wow. see by the loss, by inhibiting this protein, um, tumour cells grow slower... Um, and um, so it's kind of counterintuitive to what you think. Like you yeah. think that this protein is involved in activating the immune response, but it, but um, and which is true. But when in a cancer situation, cancers have somehow found a way to co-opt or like hijack this kind of protein to um, further their growth. So we're we're looking at it now in terms of you know what happens if we get rid of this protein in um, tumors or cancer cells. Mm. Um, we're finding that these um, cells are um, more susceptible to um, cell death or um, yeah. um, slowing down their growth. And we're trying to. Well, I, I'm trying I mean, to sorry, out what's so going on. mind blown on that. I mean, so does when, when we think about how chemotherapy works, I mean, mm. how does how does chemotherapy treatment affect this protein? Yeah, like is that part of the reason why chemotherapy works as a technique? Because like, really? we don't normally think of it that way. Yeah, are you reading my lab book or something? That's a no, no, <laughs> no, I'm trying to look at. I'm a, so. I'm a stupid ex-physicist who <laughs> thinks that this biology stuff is freaky. Yeah, so I think um, <laughs> chemotherapy is it's what we're looking into next. So we're seeing that. Um, 
uh, what we're going to see what, whether or not um, by losing this protein CT2 and then treating the cancer cells with chemotherapy, can we actually enhance the effect of these chemoth- uh, mm. chemotherapeutic drugs? Because um, already we're at a baseline by losing CT2, you um, sl- you're slowing down tumor growth. But can you enhance this further by um, using different chemotherapies? That's exactly where we're going. Interesting. Next. Interesting. So how naturally would you gain or lose this CT2 protein? You sort of said that yeah, if you have too much of it, it does one thing. If you don't have mm. enough, how does that happen? Is that just natural variability? I think so, yeah. So there are um, mutations um, that would um, impair this uh, protein's uh, function, um, and we're trying to find um, different um, parts of the protein that uh, would be need to be um, mutated or um, impaired for uh, the RNA transport function to be um, lost. So I think um, it's quite... It's, we've also found that it can be the levels of the protein can also change depending on um, different um, immune um, responses. So if you have an, a, a viral infection, as we worked on, we saw that this protein actually um, increased in, in levels um, in the cells that um, require it. So, yeah. Geez, I'm going to be hopefully never the person who walks in with with a cancer and and says to the clinicians, "Get this CD2 out of me." <laughs> <laughs> it's not helping. They'll look at me like, "What? What, <laughs> what are you talking about, dude?" Um, now, the big question I know that everyone out there is wondering is, is there a SID T3? Oh, that was the first question I had during my um, p- p- first week of PhD. Like, I know there's, we know that there's a SID T1 and a yeah. SID T2. What about a SID T3? And I made that joke in one of my um, early seminars, got crickets, so I'm glad you guys are laughing now. <laughs> you haven't answered the question, though, Dan. Oh, uh, no. I guess. no yeah, <laughs> there's, yeah. that's a no. Are there, are there other proteins that work in a similar way to this one, though? Because it sounds like whenever I hear that this is an ancient sort of protein and mm. that it was a precursor to that, mm. Like, was the precursor one that we still have but we no longer use because we now have this new evolved version, mm. but our bodies have just carried the old one, you know, as we have a lot of crap we don't we don't use? Yep. Is is it like that? Are there other ones that are similar and more advanced or less advanced, or is this quite a unique type of protein molecule? Absolutely. I think that's um, a quite an analogy for what hap- what's happening with CT1 and CT2. We found that CT1 is um, very lowly expressed in the body mm. now. Um, the other part of my PhD was trying to figure out what this other gene was doing as well didn't get very far with that one so it doesn't seem to be playing an important role um in the body these days not to say that it's not doing anything but um mm. yeah it's very different these the two functions of these proteins that are quite related they're structurally very similar um for whatever reason ct1 is not doing the same thing as ct2 and it's um, yeah. they've kind of diverged in their function over time which is quite interesting yeah. yeah and does it do anything else like if i turn this off in my body is you know my finger's going to fall off or anything like there's often you know often when we talk about these things they're, they're highly complicated in the way they interact with the body yeah, is this is this very specific this one or is it um, um, maybe doing other things i think it might be doing other things we found um we've actually found a patient who had mutations in this um gene and we found um she's uh, it's quite interesting. We're trying to figure out what it is now, but she's um, previously a you know A grade student. She was very smart, and when she was starting from the age of I think twelve or thirteen, I think she started to develop this neurological um, disorder. So now at twenty three, she's lost a lot of her memory and wow. um, muscle movement and things like that. So it's definitely doing something else besides um, you know the immune response and uh, I guess cancer as well, which is what I'm looking mm. at. But um, yeah, it's because it's so ex- um, highly expressed around the body and it's. It, I think it's being a 
protein that's on lysosomes and endosomes. That's a, quite an important organelle within the cell. Yeah. So um, it must be doing other things. But yeah, you know. oh, it's fa- fascinating stuff. I always like to remind Dr. Linden, you know, the climate's complicated, but the immune system is complicated. <laughs> right? I mean, that's uh, this stuff is, is weird stuff. Tan, it, it really sounds interesting work, and I, lo- I love it whenever we hear these things that come out contrary to what we would expect. I mean, it's that's real good learning out of these systems because yeah. it gives us such an insight into the the directions we should go in order to provide treatments for people and so forth. So congratulations on this work. Keep uh, keep looking for Sid T3. Um, you know, you never know. But it uh, so- sounds like you're onto something really interesting. So thanks for coming in, Chetting. Thank you very much, Shane. Thanks for having me. Thanks Dr. Everyone. Tan Nguyen is from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. 102.7. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Francine Marquez. She is from the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. Francine, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank you, Shane, for having me here today. It's great to have your accent in here. Where are you from? I'm from Brazil. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Um, how long have you been here in Australia? Uh, 12 years. 12 years. Yep. And you're holding the faith with the accent. I, I love know. It. I yeah. don't think it will ever go. That's good. Hey, no, it, don't. there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> says, says the American. Been here 16 years. <laughs> Yours is wearing off, Bill. And the Brit has been here for 10 years. <laughs> you're British? <laughs> <laughs> you two go over and fight in the corner about colony and stuff um francine back to you now you we've met before because uh you work in the area of hypertension i came along to one of your events which was very good um i hear about high blood pressure and hypertension people just start freaking out when they they hear that stuff can you define for us what is i mean first of all let's talk about blood pressure what are we talking about when when someone talks about high and low blood pressure what are they talking about they're talking about uh, two numbers. Usually when you go to your doctor mm. and you get your blood pressure checked, you see in the machine two numbers. Yep. So the high number is the maximum pressure inside your heart and mm-hmm. the uh, smaller number is the minimum pressure inside your heart. Mm. So ideally, if you are in your uh, doctor's office, you want that number to be lower than 140 over 90. Okay. And, what, and why is that? I mean, is, is it the, sorry, is it the how high the numbers are? that's the problem or the distance between them or no. what's what's yeah. the issue so uh, the problem is how high they are okay. because we know that um there is a very uh, linear association between our blood pressure and having uh, a risk of having heart disease so having like a stroke having a heart attack uh with time as well leaving uh your blood pressure being high untreated mm. can lead to your heart failing as well so, and and why, why is that? I mean, if, if I think about the mechanics of this, I would be thinking, if my blood pressure is higher, well, maybe my heart has to do less work. No, it's is actually it the, other the way opposite. Around? Yeah. Mm. So think about like if you have a pipe that constant, constantly has very high pressure inside, what happens to that pipe? Yep. It's more likely to burst. So that's like what would happen mm. in your brain, for example, uh, in the case of uh, having a stroke. But in your heart as well, if you have a high blood pressure with time, you have to put more pressure in your heart to do the work. Mm. And with that, uh, your heart ends up um, changing how it needs to work. And you have have some cells that end up dying and those cells are replaced with uh, other cells that will make your heart stiffer yeah, so right. your heart can't really pump anymore right. under its normal function right now i want to get a bit personal now because i have lower blood pressure 
Are there risk factors associated with low blood pressure, like similar to having high blood pressure, or is that something you always want? No, it's something that usually won't. Awesome. So our blood pressure, <laughs> our blood pressure usually increases as we age. Yep. So it doesn't matter where we start. Like in my case, I have low blood pressure as well. Yeah. I know that my blood pressure is going to increase as I age. Why, so, why are you telling me this? I don't want to hear this. This is, uh, this has been my, my hallmark for, yeah. you know, you walk but in look, like, oh, your blood pressure is perfect. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. But that's great because as you age, your blood pressure will increase, but you'll yeah. probably still be within a normal range. So that means you're more protected against having heart disease in general right yeah. and what sort of things can we do to you know i know people take various medications but is is that how we go about reducing our blood pressure and how much does it have to be reduced by to put this into a normal range so ideally you want to be uh, with less than 140 over 90 okay. uh, but there has been some uh, new studies that suggest that even reducing to lower than 120 of the higher blood pressure of the systolic blood pressure might uh, have even higher protective effect uh-huh. against uh, uh, cardiovascular events yeah. as we call and uh, there's several things you can do to protect your uh, blood pressure, lower your blood pressure. One of the things is exercising. You know, exercise yep. is great. Uh, but also there's lots of components of our diet, such as uh, eating a high amount of fruit and vegetables, fiber in general. That's one of uh, the things yeah. that I specialize on. But also eating uh, food that contains uh, low salt. So the combination right. is basically if you can eat unprocessed food and try not to eat much salt. Right. Now let's talk about the fiber element because that's, that's what you've been working on. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about there? How much fiber am I going to have to eat? Because often, often when I when I hear these stories, and then someone says you've got to be a truckload of this stuff to make a difference. So yeah. what, what are we talking about? In so terms of uh, dietary guidelines in Australia recommend that uh, women should be eating between twenty five to uh, twenty to twenty five grams of fiber a day. Men twenty five to thirty grams of fiber a day. Most people don't eat that. Hmm. Uh, if you think about, um, have you heard of the five and two um, no. dietary uh, intake? So um, our uh, Guidelines suggest that we should be having five portions of vegetables a day and two portions of fruit a day. So you might have heard that even uh, Jamie Oliver does a lot of uh, um, uh, promotion about that. And we know that only one in every 20 Australians actually eat that. Mm. And I find particularly difficult, you know, yeah. with the five yeah. cups of uh, uh, vegetables a day, I find that difficult to reach myself. And yeah. I know the benefits of fiber. Yeah. And yeah. chocolate's not a vegetable, just to no, clarify. Unfortunately, that, no. Yeah. <laughs> fruit? Not a fruit? Either? Not a fruit? <laughs> not a fruit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what exactly can the fiber do to help get in, help you with your blood pressure? I'm trying to figure out how it gets from your belly into your heart what does it what does it do yep. for you yep so that's a very uh, interesting question and that's what we have been trying to address so we know from uh, large studies looking into whole populations that fiber has uh, traditionally been associated with lower blood pressure but we didn't understand how or why and that's what our research has been trying to address and what we find is that when you have uh, a high fiber intake the type of microbes that we have in our gut changes and also um, while we can't digest most of that fiber, our microbes digest that fiber for us. And the result of that digestion is the release of certain molecules or gut metabolites, as we call them, that seem to be beneficial in lowering blood pressure. So this is back to the microbiome again. Yes. I mean, we've been talking about this so much over probably the last 10 years of the show, and it, it spans from autism to other areas of neuroscience to now to hypertension yep. and cardiovascular. I mean, that's yep. an area we haven't talked about yet. H- how much can we... You know, what about things like, um, you know, just to throw them out there, you know, 
there's probiotics, there's poo transplants, there's all sorts of other things. I mean, are these things ones that you might look at as well? I mean, I know, Dr. Union, you're okay there? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you should know poo transplants were a yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, they are yeah, a thing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in terms of poo transplants, um, <laughs> we do that in uh, experimental models to show that there is a role, for example, for gut microbes in the development of hypertension. But I wouldn't suggest doing that. Uh, transplants from people to people as a cue for hypertension. Right, yeah. um, one of the reasons is because we know that our microbes also have lots of other functions, not just in blood pressure, as you mentioned. And because of that, you might be acquiring other things on the way. Mm. Uh, so I would be cautious about that. There has been studies of people, for example, that had a fecal transplant and ended up developing obesity that they didn't have before because right. of that. So wow. I'll be very cautious. Yeah. Um, Probiotics as well, another, uh, uh, I think, highly discussed topic. And one of the issues is because um, you might take like a probiotic that contains a lot of bacteria and that might have a beneficial factor. However, if you're not eating what those specific bacteria need to stay in your gut, they're not going to hang around mm. for long. Mm. So, so we're back to eating well, lots of fiber, and this, yeah. this should help. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think this, um, these connections between the, you know, the gut, it's becoming more important than the brain these days. It's, it's, there's so much in that and there's so many health elements, but it all comes back, as you say, don't eat processed crap off the shelves and you'll be better off. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, look, it's great to chat to you, Francine. Thanks so much for, for coming in and, and good luck with this continued work. And hopefully this will get into the, you know, food guidelines and nice to see people getting more information. As you say, you know, people aren't aware of it. So that, that'd be very helpful. So thanks for the chat. Thank you. Dr. Francine Marquez is from the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. We're pretty much out of time, folks, so we're going to have to hand over. Dr. Linden, good to uh, see you and hear more about the amazing climate stuff that's going on. Good to see you too, Dr. <laughs> Shane. I'm, I won't be here. I've been here for the last three weeks and then I'm going to be away, so I'll see you, Couple see of you in the midwinter. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there'll be a lot of data by the end of <laughs> more, more depressing data to bring in. <laughs> yeah. Look forward to it. Dr. Laura, what time do you have to be at the airport? <laughs> not for a few days. Oh, not for a few days? Yeah, and then you're going away for a couple of months, huh? O- only only just a few weeks. Only oh. a few weeks, but yeah, great to be here. All right. Well, we'll see you back relatively soon. Dr. Ray, uh, it's good to know that you're going to be here on Earth, or are you going away too? Uh, not until not the end of the month, but I certainly have a craving for some carrots and celery. Carrots and celery? I'm thinking about the chocolate. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, we digress, folks. Um, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, so if you're not following us already, please do. There's some great pictures of our guests from today, which will be podcast uh, in a few days time thanks for listening to Einstein at GoGo remember science is everywhere, have a great Sunday and we'll chat to you again next week this has been a podcast from Free Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio want to hear more? check out our website at rrr.org.au